when you see patterns of your own behavior and of others, and then you decide to make a, you think, oh, this is the situation again. Here's what I did last time. Oh, look what happened. Maybe I'll do something else this time. That's wisdom. And I realized that I had walked away from an awful lot of things in my life. And then I realized that I wanted to walk towards something. It's just a mental shift, but it changed so much for me. So surviving what he describes as a a tormented childhood riddled with abuse, Alan Cumming turned to acting before he even really knew what acting was as a way to step out of the world he inhabited and into one of his own creation, one that was safe, where he made the rules. And that impulse eventually led him to leave home to study drama in Glasgow and, in his words, tumble into a career that, from the outside in, has appeared as this endless stream of successes. He's performed with everyone from Jay-Z to Liza Minnelli, won countless theatrical awards, made back-to-back films with people like Stanley Kubrick and even the Spice Girls, played God, the Devil, Hitler, a Pope, a teleporting superhero, Hamlet, all parts in Macbeth, General Batista of Cuba, a goat opposite Sean Connery, and a political spinmeister, Eli Gold, on seven seasons of The Good Life. He's also owned the stage and invited people to really re-examine examine their beliefs, identity, sexuality, and sense of power, propriety, and openness in the role of the MC in Cabaret, which he took on three times over 22 years in London and on Broadway. He's the author of five books, including a number one New York Times bestselling memoir and played the first ever gay leading role on a U.S. network drama, CBS's Instinct. And Alan was made an officer of the British Empire for his contributions to the arts and LGBT equality by the Queen and has had a love affair with New York City for nearly three decades where he lives with his husband and just for fun also happens to own a bar. So what sounds like this near magical life on stages though on television on big screen has also seen its share of profound pain loss grief existential struggle and eventually a series of reckonings and awakenings to who and what matters and a certain reclamation of joy and of life and now in his 50s ellen reflects on these moments along this journey in his new book baggage and we dive into it all along with his take on current culture in this conversation so excited to share it with you i'm jonathan fields and this is good life project Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Some fun connections. Um, apparently, we're both born in 1965, which I recently learned is the year of the snake in uh, Chinese animals. Oh, you didn't know that? Yes, we're snakes. Yeah, I didn't realize that. So I, I quickly looked up what it meant, and I was like, wait a minute. How can every person born in this year be all of that? <laughs> I was like... I just don't get that. <laughs> yeah, it's just a little random. <laughs> I'll give you that, yes. Yeah. Um, you also have a love affair with New York. I'm a New Yorker who is um, recently, as of last year, after being born just outside and spent my entire adult life in the city, have been out in Colorado for the last year. Where about? In Boulder, Boulder area. Oh, Boulder. Oh, gosh, that's lovely yeah, there. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's really nice, you know? And it's interesting. Um, if we take a whole big step back in time for you, like you grew up effectively on an estate. Which was, you know, like your family was, your dad was the uh, head forester. And I wonder was, you know, I, I know you've described in a lot of detail, it was a terribly abusive experience for you and yet a, a tough upbringing. Was growing up on that area also, it, I wonder if it was also isolating for you, sort of like removing you from other people. Completely. Because you were almost like in your own little mini place. Totally. I mean, yeah. I mean, the nearest neighbors. We were in a, it's practically in a forest, you know, there were, and there were other people who worked on the estates, but there weren't, I mean, there weren't street lights. There weren't, you know, it was in the middle of the country and there was neighbors, you know, up the road a bit, but not people, there weren't like kids of my age. Yeah. Very isolated. And also, you know, the other thing was I was, I, I, when you are in, in an abusive situation, you're sort of ashamed. So I wouldn't really want to bring people to my house. I'd be too scared of what might happen with my dad. and. So I, yeah, I was very, very isolated. And um, I, I, you know, my solace was going into the woods and sort of, you know, just daydreaming and, with my dogs and just kind of sort of making stuff up. I, I mean, I kind of think that's my first foray into acting was me just pretending to be other people wandering around the woods just to kind of get away from the kind of awfulness of my present existence then. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I think it, I think it definitely, and also it's easier to be, you know, when you are the person who is abusing, it's much easier to do it when you're not, you don't have neighbors, you don't have people coming by, you know, so it's, yeah, it was, it was sort of the perfect storm. Yeah. It's interesting the way you described acting sort of like in, in those earlier days, it, it seems like it's almost part, you know, allowing you to step into a, an alternate reality. It's like where yeah. you get to create the world, you get to identify the character, you get to like yeah. play the role you want to play in the world you want to play. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, that was definitely... So it's like a coping mechanism. It's almost like you get to create your own safety. Exactly. Exactly. And I still feel like I write in my this new book about how I think about acting as this uh, fusion of uh, utter truth and utter deceit at the same time. And I I actually love that. I think that's really good because you can... I say say to someone that, you know, when you tell a lie, like, you know, like you're sort of a lie, you tell a lie to someone because you're trying to surprise them or to... Or, you know, or, me, or just you tell a lie. People tell lies sometimes, let's face it. And there's some sort of thrill of telling a lie, of being bad, of being naughty, of subterfuge. 
And that's kind of what acting's like for me. There's a, almost an erotic thrill about lying because you're being someone else. Yeah. And I think that's always been a part of it for me. I mean, that's amazing. I, I actually, I remember the the line that you wrote in the book. I actually, I noted it um, because it really resonated with me. You, mm. you wrote, uh, there was something about the doing of it that made me feel more alive, heightened, energized. I guess pretending to be someone else is both a way to show others who you are and at the same time, not fully have to present your true self. It's a constant duality of utter truth and utter deceit. And for me, that was and is completely thrilling and addictive. Because I'm so impressed that you got that, found that so quickly. <laughs> How did you do that? <laughs> did you like do a search for a certain word or something? I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, no, I, I, that. It, it just it really jumped out. Um, <laughs> and it was so it's funny that you brought that up. That's great, Jonathan. <laughs> Yeah, no, I love that. It, it just demonstrates something so deep about it. Yeah. I love that about it. And I think it's, I mean, I always think that people talk too much about acting and over-mythologize, especially American people, and make it into a science when it's not. And you know, people say to me, oh, what's your process? I always say, I'm not a cheese. <laughs> I have no process. And I can't, I can't bear that thought that it's a process. That somehow you, it's like a chemical you know, experiment or something. Um, but I, I, I think it should be like kids, you know, it should be like kids having playing, just playing and, 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 and they get a thrill about pretending to be someone else and to be sort of, and to be lying, you know, and uh, that's what I, that's what I like. And I just, I don't, I mean, people, I'm, there's this movie I'm going to do with this director and I've, you know, met him a few times and he says, I know you say you have no process, but I don't believe you. I was like, oh, well. <laughs> You're about to find out. I don't have a process. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I don't have a process in the way that you think. Like this movie I'm going to do now, it's in my head. It's it started. I've sort of made some decisions, but it's just sort of I just live with it. I don't try and, you know, make a gazillion notes. I don't sort of, I just sort of think, who is this person? And let them just be in, live in my mind for a while and get to know them. That's what that's my process, I suppose. But it's not a process. I don't sort of. I just and then. But what's interesting, I'll be I'll just be walking along, walking my dog. And then I think, oh, I see. I've made a decision about about him. I made, you know, so it's it's sort of like that. I just think that's, I hate, I just, like my worst fear is being in a room of actors all talking about acting. And one of the things about, um, I did that show Schmigadoon for Apple in, during the pandemic. That's the first thing I you know, went back to work to do. And I loved it. But because of all the COVID stuff, we were all different colours. I think we were red. The actors and the director and the, you know, and the makeup people and the cinematographer were red. And yellow was like, you know, the other crew that could be on the set with us but couldn't come near yeah. us. And then there was green for the people who moved the scenery. It was various things. And what it meant was as soon as you finished the take, you couldn't just hang out and chat to the crew and shoot the breeze. You had to leave the soundstage, go into another one and just be with the actors. And it sounds awful. <laughs> Sounds awful. I actually loved all those actors. We had a great time, but that's kind of my idea of hell. That I just I can't. I can only talk to actors. I mean, there was the the, the makeup in here. People in wardrobe were there too. But I just find sort of you know I find the notion of talking about acting boring, and it's just you should just do it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean it, it's interesting. Also, the way you describe being isolated within the set. I have a, a bunch of friends, like having been in New York for a long time, um, that have been in and out of all sorts of like theater, film, TV. Um, one of them is actually a dresser who's um, like been a dresser on Broadway for decades mm -hmm. and on different shows, most recently in, in Wicked. And she described what she does as 
you know, when she describes what happens backstage, it's not just, you know, like the actors are here and the, you know, like the, the crew is here and the dressers are here and makeup is here, but she literally described it as, you know, like, this is my actor. Like uh, my yes. job is literally yes. like to make them feel seen, yes. held, heard, like they are yeah. utterly taken care of because, and she positions herself as, you know, like, if I do my job right, then the actor is in a state where when they step on stage, the narrative, the story flows into the audience and it lands differently. So it's like she's part of the narrative of the entire story. Absolutely. I love that. I used to think stage managers or, or people that say something about my actors, you know, don't speak to my actors before they're about to go on stage. Or, you know, they get quite like you're a little, like you're, they're a lioness and you're a little cub. But actually, I think it's really amazing that, that when people have that because they under you're right they understand how they can contribute to the end thing in a way it's, and it's been it's been looked after in that way yeah I, i'm all for that i think that's really i mean i think that you should and i'm very respectful of whoever, whatever you need to do to get your shit together to be on on camera or be on stage whatever i'm I, you know i i need to have a moment you know when i go on stage but if, if, if there's people who you know, I mean, I've not really worked with anyone who does that thing where they ask you to call them by their real name, their character's name, rather, and all that stuff. But, you know, if I, I mean, I, I probably just wouldn't speak to them, I suppose, if they did that. But I, I think, you know, I'm very respectful of whatever you need to do, except if it impinges on other people's lives. I just think, you know, do what you need to do, but if it's do it in a corner and then come and do it. But if you're not going to sort of just chat with us and be a part of the gang and then sort of get on with it then don't make us have to buy into your thing. That annoys me. But I, I do think like help everyone helping you to do the best job you can is a really great thing about, especially the theatre, actually. It really feels like that. And in, in films and things, you're aware of all that because they keep you like a little sort of cocooned prince. You're in your trailer, you get brought to the, someone who holds an umbrella for you. You know, you're like this little fragile, little Christmas tree ornament that, you know, and it's not just because you're a movie star and they're being nice to you. It's because you have to be, you have to do the goods and you have to, you know, time is money and they want you to just not be, have any reason not to just get it done. It's a business thing. And I think that's, and that's why I actually think, yeah, I should be looked after and I should be warm and fed and, <laughs> and whatever, because when it comes down to it, you're the person on the camera that's got to like come up with the goods and if you fuck up, you you slow everything down, and it's also mortifying. It's mortifying to screw up when everyone's looking at you. I've I've done my my things. I've had giggling fits when I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> and first of all, the crew are like, "Oh, how cute!" Alan's being, he can't stop laughing. Ah, ha, ha. Then it's like Friday, you know, Friday afternoon or Friday evening. Everyone wants to go home, and I can't get my shit together. I can't stop laughing, and we can't finish the scene because I'm la and I'm laughing because how awful it is that I can't stop laughing. And, I, and then everyone starts to get angry at me and I start, I'm laughing at the fact they're getting angry at me. And it's just, you know, that's terrible. So uh, I understand. I understand the concept of that, how you need to get your shit together. And any, any, anyone who can help you with that, I'll, I'll take it. Yeah. I mean, it's a bigger consideration. It's like you're a part of a bigger ecosystem yeah. and everyone's got to sort of like do their thing. You know, it's interesting. So you end up, you end up um, growing up in this really tough environment, basically splitting to go and study theater um, or study drama, theater yeah. acting. And you step out of school and it seems like in, in fairly rapid succession, you're having all of these successes. You start to eventually um, become known a bit in the US. It's, it, sound, it seems like 
a huge moment for you was actually cabaret mm. um, in the Very UK much. before you came to yeah, the yeah, US. That's right. And it, on so many different levels, it seems like it was personally transformational um, from a career standpoint. It was transformational, but also terrifying. And this is part of what you write about, actually, in Baggage. Yes, when it came to, I mean, actually, I did it first in London. It was terrifying then too, actually, for other reasons. But when I, like, it came to New York, quite a few years after it was in London, I thought it was never going to happen. And I'd never worked in New York before. I'd been like, I'd come, you know, the first time I came was for a premiere of a movie I was in. You know, I loved it, but I didn't really know people here. And I I wanted to spend more time in the city. But anyway, I came and, I, you know, I, I had never, I'd. it's hard to just describe it because it sounds like, I, I I only went to America when I was 30. Like I never had been to America. I had a whole life where America was not even a part of my mental periphery. Then I went to Hollywood and then I went back to Europe. Then I came to New York and then I, you know, stayed. <laughs> but I, I have an outsider's perspective, I think, because of that. But also at the same time, I'm obviously an outsider here, but I also, ha- ha- then and now, I'm still trying to catch up with American culture and American rules and American etiquettes, even American words. You know, I said I said thing another thing on the stage the other night with Ari. I said something about something was a tissue of lies. And he goes, what do you mean by that? I was like, a tissue of lies. And he goes, we don't say that here. I was like, you don't? I've been saying that for years and nobody understands me. <laughs> and then I said also I laughed like a drain. And he went, what do you mean? I was like, you know, and apparently people don't say that here. I every day I still find something that I'm either, you know, don't understand or have been saying wrong or I can't remember the American word for it. So I'm at a disadvantage in that I didn't grow up in this culture. And so when I came to do Cabaret on Broadway in 1998 and I became a part of the culture, actually, it was so overwhelming because I didn't really know what was going on. I didn't understand, nothing to compare it to. It was obviously a huge thing. it, It was a sensation. And not just the sensation as a show, but I think the sort of sexuality of the show and the way that I was sort of portrayed and perceived was something that people hadn't seen before. And that kind of entered the zeitgeist in a way that was, you know, it was it was mental. And I didn't understand what was happening to me. And I was very, so I was very stressed out. And I, 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 was, I had fun, but at the same time, it was a bit like, you know, it was a lot of shallow breathing to get through it. And um, I, yeah, I, and that's why I'm so glad that I went back and did it again, actually. I did, so I did cabaret that production again, 16 years later. Uh, about five years ago and um, you know I knew my way around the block by then I knew what to expect I knew what was happening and I think the play was better because I my role in it wasn't so sensational and create the sex stuff or the sexuality stuff the more shocking stuff that happened in 1998 wasn't so shocking it wasn't so yeah. and it kind of didn't overshadow the, the rest of the play so much so I think it was actually a better production and I certainly had more fun because I wasn't completely bowled over and freaked out by what this crazy thing that was happening to me I mean, it's so interesting also, because that show in particular, when you think about just the change in culture, the change in politics, the change in, in society between 98 and 14, mm-hmm. when you did the, the the last one, I mean, it's like the world changed so much it, that when you'd go and do that on Broadway in 98, which was a time also where, well, actually you write, um, the Kit Kat Club became a social utopia Americans could convert in before returning to the harsh reality of reality. Mm. Right. This was a time where people were really, th- there was a lot of, 
it, it was a very polarizing time, I think, for sexuality Definitely. and for like, you know, like stepping outside of the confines of what you were, quote, supposed to be yeah. in the roles you were supposed to play. So when, when you're playing that role in 98, you know, you're not just playing that role. Like you're making a statement, I feel yes. like, in, and the whole show was in a way where in 2014, it was just very different. Very, very different. And and I was, you know, because as European as well, you know, that made it kind of more exotic and mischievous and saucy. And also it was just, you know, I, I write in the book about how, I tried to make sense of what happened to me. And I, you know, ironically, I'm very friendly with Monica Lewinsky. She's a dear friend. And I write, I, I sort of write this kind of treatise, I suppose, in a way about how I sort of think in a funny way, the fact that, that all the stuff that, was, that she was going through that year in American life, it was all about sex and the prurience and the scandal and the damning of her during that year about about that kind of sexuality whereas for me being this sort of sexual deviant in a broadway show and being a man a sort of skinny european man objectified in this way was really lauded and uh, i just thought that was so fascinating that i think in a way i think perhaps that's one of the reasons why that production of cabaret at that time was so explosive because it was a counterpoint to to what was going on, uh, to what Americans were seeing every day in, in on television and in the newspapers with this the whole Clinton impeachment scandal. Yeah, it's it's, it's really fascinating. I mean, I wonder if also part of it was there was a certain there was a certain yearning to step outside of like that the boundary of propriety at that time, you know. And everybody knew that there was another way to live. Everyone knew that there were all sorts of alternatives. But what I mean, if I compare that time to today, right, where it feels like. The, the world in a lot of ways is both more closed down, but also a lot more open. I mean, conversation around sexuality, sexual orientation, gender identity, it kind of didn't exist in 98 unless you lived yeah. in a world that, you know, like queer culture in 98 was not a part of the common conversation, <laughs> you know, um, no, sexual identity. It was, like, no. whereas today it's sort of like, it just comes up in, in all sorts of parts of conversation in the news, just in personal conversation at dinner tables. But back then- it was like, okay, so, you know, you're either a part of this quote scene, which is an absurd sort of like word mm. to use. And if you weren't, like there was an expectation that you would behave a certain way. Yeah. But I think a lot of people didn't want to behave that certain way. And Cabaret gave them permission to sort of like step into this alternate reality. Yes, exactly. And I think for me, that meant that I then was sort of shot into a mainstream sort of American way. I'm just a little queer person who's on, you know, the, the Tonight Show and sort of had an access to sort of mainstream middle America, being very much able to be myself, but not, um, I, I said I was, I was the acceptable face of deviance in America because I could go on these shows and be sort of <laughs> wicked and say say naughty things and say or say shocking things, but I was still sort of that, you know, cute little Scottish boy. So it's actually a really good thing, I think, actually. It was sort of... I was thinking about how, you know, for a while in the sort of early 2000s, I felt like the poster boy for queerness because I had that access and there weren't very many people, you know, out and stuff like that. And and so it did feel a little lonely and it did feel a bit exhausting to sort of do that. But it was something, you know, I'm very glad to have been able to do it and had that platform and had that sort of thing. But now it feels less, it feels less, there's lots, there's lots more people. Yeah, there's lots of more queer people. They're everywhere. 
Um, who knew? And they always were. <laughs> right. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose, and then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's actually me. That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi's starter pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, and deodorant wipes and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with the code GOODLIFE at lumideodorant.com. Don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code GOODLIFE. Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere ribbed beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365-day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash GLP to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash GLP or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. What's interesting also is that, you know, like beyond just the exploration of sexuality and identity, um, the, the fundamental, what that show was about, you know, was just on a political level and it's commentary on politics and equity and the, and just like the treatment of humanity. Yeah. You know, if, if you think about the fact that you did it first in 93, like in the West End, again in 98, in 2014, and you think about 
it's more relevant now, like as we're having this conversation today than ever before. And that's why, you know, during that we closed it this time in 2015. So I, I just felt it would have been, I mean, the sad thing is that it's that, that side of it is relevant always. You know, there's always some awful persecution going on somewhere. And I just think, you know, it was much more, the idea of, I mean, the two things is be vigilant about the rise of extremism and also embrace difference. Both of those things, you know, difference was not being embraced recently in America. It was being damned and banished and persecuted. And uh, extremism was happening right in front of our eyes and being and being validated and the fans being, the flames being fanned. So in a funny sort of way, I sort of wished we'd been doing it again, but you know, what can you do? It's just, it's just, a, it's a sad, that's why it's such a good show because it's always relevant, sadly. But I think it's good to be reminded that, you know, how quickly it happened in Germany and how, how it's just been tempered here. I mean, I really feel that. I actually, you know, had sort of really scary things happen to me right before the election here because I'd posted some things on Instagram and, uh, and, and got death threats and things like that from, from the Trump, the Trump digital army, as they call themselves. And a couple of things happened that were, I, I, I thought, wow, I, I don't want to live like this. I don't want to live in a place where I'm, uh, you know, fearful for my safety because I've, and I don't think, think I'm an extremist person. I obviously, uh, you know, have my views, but I, I, I put, it was, it was a graphic. I put, I reposted someone's graphic and I got all this stuff. And that really scared me that it went into another, went into another level, another sort of dimension. And it was, and I, and I, and I then, then, you know, what happened was I went to Canada to shoot Schmigadoon. And I was sort of looking back at America from Canada just before the election. And it was, a really scary thing. And I think it is still really scary. We've just got the lid on it right now, but we know it's still there. It's still bubbling away. And I feel like that's what Cabaret is so good about highlighting is that, you know, you've got to be constantly vigilant. And I, I don't take for granted my basic human rights because I feel they could easily, if Trump had got in again, I don't, you know, I think it wouldn't be too long before he'd turn on the gays you know, it was turning on the trans people, you know, so it's, it's, it's a constant, I mean, I think if you are queer, things have got better, obviously, but you can never take it for granted that you're going to be safe. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost like the, um, the fact that that one show remains ever relevant is, um, both incredible and a little bit sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, exactly. it's, it's almost like, you know, like the, the, the whole idea of, you know, like, creating something for the purpose of hoping that at some point it never like needs to be yes. done again. Um, during this whole time, you know, like we've, we've, we've just been spanning, you know, like uh, 20 years um, yeah. in conversation just about uh, your appearances in cabaret, but there's a lot of, of other things going on in your life. You're continuing to, to perform act. You also end up getting married, I guess when you're around 30 and you're, it's almost like you're living this dual existence. Like on the outside, you're having this tremendous professional success but on the inside there are a whole bunch of memories that are coming up for you like your childhood is is sneaking back into your everyday reality and you're remembering some pretty horrific things 
And that leads you to sort of like live this dual presence where from the outside looking in, it looks like, wow, like life is fantastic for this guy. And from the inside looking out, you're struggling mightily on literally on the verge of breakdown on any given day. Mm. Um, that's happened several times in my life as well. I mean, that was an extreme time. But I sort of feel that's kind of something that happens to a lot of people, you know? And I think that's why it's good to talk about. I think a part of the reason that I'm, why I'm doing these books is that I've realized that you almost have a duty to talk about yourself, if, if you can do it in an entertaining and illuminating way as well. But I feel it's sort of a duty for me to say, you know what? I know, look, here I am, I'm Alan Cumming, look, blah, blah, blah. But also, right then, I was a fucking hot mess. And I think that's really important to tell people. I, d- I think especially in America, we don't share enough. One of the good things about the pandemic is that's all actually being more aware of mental health and how important it is to check in on other people's mental health. But we, that's, that's a new thing. So I think it's good for me to say those things, to sort of say to people, because I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's a common thing. I'm sure there's people like, having, you know, the most, oh, they're probably very happy. They, or they got married or they had a baby. Or they're probably exhausted and stressed and want to kill themselves. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm trying to normalize, actually, I suppose, the fact that don't buy into the Hollywood ending, you know, about life, because it's it's stupid that you meet someone, you fall in love, and you never have sex with anyone else for the rest of your life, and you're just idyllically happy forever. Nobody's like that. And you never get depressed, and you look gorgeous every day. That doesn't happen. So I just feel that's what I, that's been my my situation many times that I've, been having these sort of you know from the outside glorious successes but inside i'm just a hot mess and just depressed and Mm. stuff like that but i do think that's common yeah i I think it's more common than people want to acknowledge but i also wonder if it's because and you write about this in a really interesting way it's like you know like when you write about that sort of like season that moment in your life um which ends up in the like the the dissolution of that marriage and and basically a whole bunch of change part of being able to move on from that right is You've got to not just let go of the circumstances of your life, but you're effectively, it's like a Phoenix process. Mm. Like that version of yourself effectively dies and there's a new one that emerges from the ashes of it. And I think we are, and probably understandably terrified of that process because like the the notion of that level of change, of transformation, um, I think we're, we're, we're so terrified of change, even if it's, it's scary, yeah. it holds the potential for, for something much better, like an evolution into something, a much better place, a much better way of being. Yes. It terrifies us. So not only do we not want to talk about it, but we don't want to allow ourselves to experience it. Yeah. Because of course you're looking at it from the other side and you've come out of it and you've had a, you found the new person you are and you found this new life and you've hopefully found happiness. But that's when you're in it, it's just terrifying. Just, I mean, change is difficult for everyone. I mean, that thing I was talking about earlier about this suddenly, you know, we're not in the pandemic sort of mode anymore. We're back to full pelt. And, you know, we're, that I've talked to a few, I went to a fitting for this suit the other day and they, the people there were saying they're really freaked out about the fact that this change of now being back at full speed, it's, it's hard. But I think when you're actually in a situation like that, you don't, you know, not knowing who you are, giving up your entire identity because it kind of, you can't not, you're sort of physically repulsed by the very existence you have and you just have to get away from it. Then you, get, then you think, well, what now? <laughs> and that was, that was a really insane time for me. But it actually, I think it 
started a thing in when I feel I've sort of tumbled through life a bit more. And that's why looking back on it and writing this book, you know, all the times when I sort of say that Hollywood called and took me out of that situation, that was part, I, I just sort of said yes to things. I just sort of said, oh, I'll give that a go. And actually, yeah, I'll go there now. It's probably not the most sensible thing to do, but I feel like, I sort of feel it would be a good idea, you know, to get out of this situation. And I've just sort of done that. And I'm still very open to things like that, you know, like, even going to do Schmigadoon last year, it was like, I think I need to go. I need to, I've had six months in this house with my husband. It's, it's been lovely, but it's been good for a change. <laughs> and to go out of America. I really wanted to go out of America at that point as well. So I did. So yeah, I think it's a good thing, but it's, you know, it's scary. Change is scary. And that at that point, and you know, I was 30, uh, 29 or something when my marriage ended, my, I had a nervous breakdown. I, I had nowhere to live. I mean, I wasn't homeless, but I had <laughs> I moved in with my friend Matthew Bourne, actually, who's a the choreographer. It was his lodger. It was a really mental time, and I, I, yeah, and I suddenly was doing the James Bond film and doing this film and doing that film, and I was, you know, having great success, but I was just a hot mess. And I think that's, I think that's common, and I wish more people would talk about it. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. It's interesting also because like you go from that space to it feels like workplace is really interesting. It plays multiple roles for you, especially when you're when you're in a dark place personally for you. On the one hand, work lets you step into life and be curious and generative and expressive. And on the other hand, it fills so many of your waking minutes 
that it serves as, I wonder if part of what it's doing is serving as a distraction from sort of like creating enough space to be with whatever you're feeling and just process it. So it's, it feels almost like a double-edged sword, but I'm wondering if that's what it felt like to you from the inside out at all. Well, sort of, but no, I like, like for example, that time in the late nineties, I just took some, I took these months off to just really, you know, let everything happen. When I start talk about this thing about Hollywood, I, it sort of, it takes me out of a situation and puts me in another one that's a little less toxic. That's what, that's where I feel it's been a benefit for me. It's not that I feel the work is, is, I mean, it is a distraction, of course, anything that you do is a distraction from, but, but it's just sort of removing me from a situation that I think is the most, was the most valuable thing. I do feel it's important to, I'm, I'm actually someone who perhaps because of all that stuff, I bet I deal with things head on. I'm good at confrontation. I, I don't shy away from things. If there's a problem, I say, let's deal with it right now. If I'm angry, I, I get angry straight away. I don't I don't let it all boil up and sort of suppress it. I uh, I deal with things because I just I understand. You know, I had I had I had my mind made me because I was such a little boy and I couldn't. What was happening to me was so I I was unable to process the kind of horror of what was happening. That it completely took those experiences out of my frontal lobe or whatever you call it, but complete. I, it, you know, and it, for like twenty years or, or or fifteen to twenty years, completely did not allow me to access a whole chunk, and I still can't remember huge chunks of my childhood. I talked to my some friends who, were, you know, I talked to my friend Alan recently, and I, I still, I still, it's just a. You know, some, my husband Grant really remembers in great detail all his childhood, all his school days, and everything. I don't. I really don't. My mind has done that to protect me. I think that's. I think that's incredible. I, I just can't. So you know, the, the idea that you've got that inbuilt thing to stop you, and then it all kind of comes gushing out when you. Well, for me, it was when I was going to be potentially be a father. And I was thinking about what I would be like as a father. And so then all this father stuff came in. So I I, um, I understand how things can be suppressed, repressed. And actually, I never want that to happen again. I want to deal with everything head on and at the time. And even if that's inappropriate sometimes, I just, I don't care. I don't mm. want to have any, I don't want to leave anything. I don't want to let it lie. Yeah. And it sounds like another, um, one of those seasons for you is uh, the summer of 2010, where there's sort of like a series of revelations that drop where like um, you learn something about your dad, you learn something about your grandpa and it's sort of like the world starts spinning again. Um, But at the same time it starts spinning. And like you just said, I guess by then this philosophy of let's just deal with this head on, like let's go straight into this and figure it out. It leads to like you, you basically dive into this. Yes, I did. I had to, my dad told me I wasn't his biological son. And at the time I was filming that Who Do You Think You Are television show where, you know, they trace your genealogy. And I found out in Malaysia, I found out my grandfather died playing Russian roulette in Malaysia. <laughs> and so, oh, that was, that was, God, that was so insane. But I, I mean, that would be enough, finding out that stuff about your granddad and sort of having to reassess that within your family. But the whole dad stuff, he came out of the woodwork and said that and I didn't I mean my father 
had not been in my life for so long. And I so I was so triggered by him being back in my life again, just by the feeling of his nearness and his sort of mental cruelty as well as, you know, that it was much more physical cruelty as well when I was a boy. But the mental cruelty of this statement, which wasn't true, was such a huge thing. And I had to, I I didn't trust him. You know, it was a multitude of emotions. I did, I did want it to be true. I didn't want to be his son. I was, my brother said, you know, you're lucky, you're lucky you're not his son. And then we did the DNA test because he said he would do that. He said, my father said he would do a DNA test. And then he said he wouldn't. And then it's, it's just, oh, uh, he said, I'm not sending my spit to America. I was like, for fuck's sake, what does that mean? So my brother and I did it, you know, you can do it like that. And so of course we had the same DNA, but so I had to call my father. I was going to call him as soon as I got the information. I was furious. I mean, I was incandescent with rage. I've never been so angry in all my life that he would fuck me about like this. Even after all these years, he could come back and be have so much power over me. And so I was going to call him, but I was in South Africa shooting a thing in the midst of shooting the Who Do You Think You Are? And I had this lovely driver called Hodges, and he told me not to do not to call my dad he said you're angry Alan do it wait till tomorrow and you do it you'll regret it and so I did I I didn't I mean I didn't call him I took his advice and he was so right and I spoke to my brother and and then the next day I called up my father and I said to him you know this is the situation you are wrong and he was like well I'm very surprised to hear that and I was like yes I bet you are (laughs) and he's he said the most incredible things to me like you know this is a man who was I believe very mentally ill, but was incredibly physically abusive and cruel and violent. And he said to me, oh, did you not notice we never bonded? And I was like, yes, I did. I did notice that big time when you were throwing me across a room. Yeah, I noticed. So that it was incredible to have that level of frankness, but also to realize in that phone call that I would never... He was mentally ill. He was not. He had somehow invented in his head and made it the truth that I was not his son to sort of excuse his behavior and his treatment of myself and my mom, but also my brother. I didn't make it. It wasn't logical either. So I did it. I did it. And I told him and I told him I wouldn't, be, you know, I, I actually said I knew he was going to die soon. And I said, oh, we won't, you know, I was I was going to say to him, okay, talk, take care. I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you. And I went, oh, actually, I won't. That's the most incredible moment, actually. Was I actually, I thought, don't lie to him. You're not going to talk to him again. You're never going to speak to him again. And I said, I'm not. I actually won't. But you know, take care. And so, yeah, I really seized that moment by the balls. And ultimately, it was a great thing for me. I don't think closure is the right word because I still think, why did you think that? Why did you? When did you think it? When did you start to pretend that I wasn't your son to make you feel better about the fact that you were such violent, you know, psychotic or psychopath? When? But I'm never going to find that out. And I've got to let that go. But I did have the resolution of feeling I had told him what I thought of him mm. and how, how disappointed I was in him. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like also that led to 
and tell me if I have the timing right. Like it wasn't long after that where there's something in you that changed. Like there's, um, you've described it as sort of like, you know, like um, a rebirth, uh, you know, like the really elevating fun and joy as something that is critical in your life. I think you, you write it, uh, I think the language you use, like you made a decision to no longer live by walking away from things and really walking towards things. Like uh, what brings me joy? What right. actually, and it's, it's interesting, right? Because as we have this conversation, as I've, you know, like seen you in like all sorts of different settings over the, the probably recent years, there seems like there is this baked in sense of comfort with who you are and joy. Like, it's almost like you said, like, joy is a value in my life. Like, play, fun is a value in my life. And this is sort of like, it's a compass. And it, and it feels, I, I wonder if that moment was, was like you said, it's not like closure, but it was enough of a closing of a door for you to step into a next season where you could say yes to the things that lifted you up. I think I'd had that before then, uh, because I wasn't... I think that happened a little bit before then, but that incident, that him coming back into my life was obviously a huge dent, a huge setback. It was actually very quick. It happened in, over a period of weeks, but it was a gigantic seismic thing for me. And then he died shortly after. So that whole thing, it wasn't the beginning of that thing you're talking about, but it completely reaffirmed all that mm. and made me... And I guess what it did, actually, was made me think, I have to talk about this. I have to tell people about this. I have to be open about this. It's a big part of my life that is not known. So that's really the biggest value of that, I think, in terms of how my life changed, is suddenly talking. Well, not suddenly, it took me a while to write the book, but like changing the narrative about yourself completely and becoming someone that people get inspired by because they're being their true authentic self. And I think maybe that was the case a wee bit before then, but actually into another into another level. And that's something that I didn't expect and something that still to this day, every day, I hear from people about that book and about my about the fact that I did what I did and said what I said. And um that was incredible. So it wasn't it was less about embracing joy. I think I'd already embraced joy. And the walking towards stuff was actually before that. I think that was really a lot to do with you know, I had problems in relationships because I was always trying to fix people. And I got used to that. I thought that was normal. I thought that was familiar. And, you know, that's, you can see where that comes from. And I think I just decided to stop that. I realized I, you know, I think that's the thing about when you see patterns in, of your own behavior and of others, that's, and then you decide to make a, you think, oh, this is the situation again. Here's what I did last time. Oh, look what happened. Maybe I'll do something else this time. That's wisdom. And I realized that I had walked away from an awful lot of things in my life. And it wasn't just like, oh, I'm changing now. I walked away from things completely. And uh, and then I realized that I wanted to walk towards something. And that's it's just a mental shift, mm. but it changed so much for me. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think that that really helps. That informs also, I know you're right about how you met your husband. Um, you're both 39 years old and- and you write for the first time ever, I entered a relationship having a frank discussion about my needs as well as my shortcomings. So it was like this this intentionality to step into something new from a place of just like, this is who I am. 
like like if we're yeah. gonna if we're gonna do this, let's be open, let's be honest, and let's make something incredible together. Yeah. Or or not at all. <laughs> or not at all, yeah. And if you can't, totally fine. I would I would understand, you know. I'm not easy. But also it's it's I'm not let's not buy the Hollywood ending. You know, let's not. Yeah. Because we know it's not I know anyway, it's it's not true. Yeah. <laughs> so as as we sit here um in this container of good life project feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well um at this moment in your life at this season in in the world and where we are right now if i offer up the phrase to live a good life what comes up um to be honest to be open to listen to yourself and see find out what you need and what you want and I mean, it's so funny. I have this tattoo on my arm. It says only connect. It's, it's from Ian Forster. And I think that, that I always think about the way that he connect, he try and connect your desire to actually how you live your life. In all ways, he, for him, that was a lot to do with his sexuality. For me, I think it's about making sure that I completely connect with people, making sure that I lived. And that's what was great about the time I spent upstate in the pandemic was actually thinking, oh, I thought a lot of the stuff that I had in my life was what I absolutely relied on and absolutely needed. And when it wasn't there, I found I was much more resourceful than I'd realized. And I, I got, oh, I like actually doing this or changing. And so in a way, I think that's been a lesson for me. I've got to kind of listen to myself and connect my desire for whatever to the way that I actually conduct myself in my life. And then I'll have a good life. Mm. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. This is really nice. I really enjoyed talking to you. Before you leave, if you love this conversation, safe bet you'll also love the conversation we had with Matthew McConaughey about what really matters in life. You'll find a link to Matthew's episode in the show notes. Even if you don't listen now, be sure to click and download so it's ready to play when you're on the go. And of course, if you haven't already done so, go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you appreciate the work that we've been doing here on Good Life Project, go check out my new book, Spark. It'll reveal some incredibly eye-opening things about maybe one of your favorite subjects, you, and then show you how to tap these insights to reimagine and reinvent work as a source of meaning, purpose, and joy. You'll find a link in the show notes, or you can also find it at your favorite bookseller now. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.